0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jagdish Rao to the podcast. Jagdish is the former Chief Executive of the Foundation for Ecological Security, which works on the ecological restoration and conservation of land and water resources in ecologically fragile, degraded regions of India. Jagdish has overseen the Foundation's impressive growth over 20 years. It's now working with more than 20,000 village communities on 6 million acres of common lands across 10 states in India. Today, we talk about the scope and impact of the Foundation's work and its distinct approach, and also Jagdish's new role working as what he calls a curator of the Promise of Commons initiative, helping preserve the commons in India. Thank you very much, Jagdish, for joining me once again on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Thank you, Fergal. The pleasure is mine too. It's been, we just worked out almost five years since we spoke. A, A lot's changed in the world since then. I'm very much looking forward to hearing about how things have changed for you, how the organization has grown, what your current focus is, and maybe diving into some areas about the the regeneration, restoration work you do and the community work. But maybe just can you remind listeners of what you actually do, what the organization, FES, Foundation of Ecological Security, what you actually do, give us a sense of the scale of your activity, I guess, in in terms of the land and also the, the people involved. At
1: FES, Foundation for Ecological Security, basically we are working at the interface of nature and people. And we are involved in conserving nature and natural resources so as to have improved ecological, social, and economic outcomes. By working in areas which are somewhat remote, adjoining forests and pastures, we are working with basically a large segment of rural people in the as of now we are working with something like 35000 villages in different parts of the country and uh, reaching something like 16 million people
0: and working on some 9 million acres of common lands right now, what are you doing with that land what, what what does it mean to be working on the land there fundamentally there are three aspects that we engage with um one is to
1: strengthen collective action amongst the village people. This is very latent in rural society uh, where people sit and resolve and regulate themselves around what should happen in their village and what is not done. That's kind of a fabric is slowly getting eroded. So we get uh, people to organize themselves, frame rules and regulations to manage their natural resources. The second important element which we work on is transferring so-called wastelands or public land, which are locally understood as village lands, common lands. We transfer the property rights of that to the village people uh, in the name of the whole village rather than individuals. The third piece that we do is wherever the ecosystems are under disrepair, we access public funds and help village people using their local wisdom restore forests or pastures or water bodies. Essentially, these are the three
0: core elements that we work at scale. And what is the scale of the problem that you set out to deal with? It's uh, made sure that
1: it is somewhere in the range of 205 million acres, 200 to 210 million acres of land, uh, which are in various records managed by different departments like forest department or a revenue department or a a uh, uh, panchayat, that's a local council's kind of a department. So these are, this the potential is two hundred plus million acres. We are
0: somewhere in the range of some nine million acres as of now. And this two hundred million acres, what's the problem with this land? What what needs to be done in in your view? This this comes from a larger
1: understanding, which is you know fashionably called as the tragedy of commons, where Basically, the presumption is village people are not capable enough to manage such shared resources, as a result of which governments tend to centralize it and they're managing it, which is somewhat ineffective and costly. And the second option they choose is totally privatize it to individuals or corporations. Uh, this is the, you know, the larger problem from an ownership dimension. There are other deeper mindset-related issues that village people are dumb, or women cannot take decisions, or they're not capable of t- taking decisions. This is the larger narrative which which underpins this whole thinking.
0: So this land, as well as the problems of it being centralised and not managed well, because the restoration side of what you're doing is is very important. So this land. I guess, presumably, is in disrepair in, in various ways. Can you give us a picture of it's? It's a lot of land, a lot of, of India's landmass. But can you give a sense of, of the state of, of some of that land or an overview? Basically, forests are degrading rather rapidly
1: of true natural forests. You have plantations coming up in there, but that's also not all across. So you have a, a considerable degradation of natural forest cover. Pastures are poorly managed. There's a considerable soil erosion, uh, water-related erosion problems, and eventually they all lead to soil health-related problems in the agriculture farms. You can uh, typically in this kind of landscape somewhere around forty to fifty percent of a village could be this kind of a land, and usually they are on the upper reaches of the uh, the village watershed. These are like hills or slopey lands, which are not necessarily fit for agriculture. These are the lands which have been most neglected because of the nomenclature, because of the ownership issues, and again, a poor faith in the capabilities of village people. So devolution
0: did not happen. Yes, and I'm interested in the work you're doing with communities, and I'd like to talk to you about that. But can you give us a sense maybe of of what the potential is in, in, in a village, in a community, a piece of land a kind of case study or just a sense of what it was like when you went there and what is the potential when you put in place, you you help get the the land title, you get shared resources and and a a local governance and and the land starts to get regenerated.
1: So in a country like India, usually nature does most. We have so much of sunshine and so much of monsoon that nature takes over. But basically village people have to exercise some rules and regulations of when they would allow grazing or which parts would be allowed for harvesting firewood or where would they put some small dams to regulate the flow of water. These are the kind of measures that village people start taking in the years after they get some kind of a security of ownership of land and where people start framing the rules. What we then see is maybe in the initial first monsoon itself, ephemerals coming up. There's a lot of uh, grasses coming up. This is, you know, like the backbone of village economy. When, When grasses start coming up, you actually have fodder banks in your village. So people use that for feeding the livestock. And in turn, the livestock results in increase in milk production. The second thing that happens is meat, you know, small ruminants like sheep and goats go into meat. So, you're having small ATM machines in your own house. Whenever they need money, they sell a few sheep or goat. The second important thing that, uh, again, nature helps is because of this vegetation that's coming up, water starts percolating either down or it is down underground or it's flowing at a slower pace. As a result of which, again, importantly, for livestock or for human consumption, water is available, say, Without this kind of work, water would have dried up by October or November. That's the end of the monsoon period. But you would have, because of the vegetation, water slowly increasing over three, four years into almost February, May. But if you wait for eight, nine years, what you see is year-round supply of water. You know, that's backbone. That's really critical for the village people because they don't have to migrate in search of water for their livestock or even for their human consumption. Then, when the water starts percolating down and improves the seepage or the groundwater-related resources, first thing that happens is soil moisture availability in the agriculture fields, they will at least get the first crop very secure because of the soil moisture. If they are lucky, where the groundwater starts getting recharged, they can pump that out and even have a second crop. That's like getting two paychecks in a month and i'm not talking about the variety of biodiversity that comes in uh, various effects of pollination which again helps reduce expenditure for the farmers or even the pests we notice that even on the hedges the number of spiders that come up with a bit of uh, help the spiders control the other insects thereby you don't have to spray that much of pesticides again it's a reduction in the expenditure that's the kind of a uh,
0: Village economy booming with these green natural solutions. That's very inspiring. Can you very briefly just talk about the the water situation in India? I, I guess it depends in such a vast area in different areas. But h- how how acute is the water crisis? Say in the peninsular
1: India, not the mountains and the delta areas, but means the you know the rest of India, the peninsular India. About seventy to eighty percent of the districts are already called dark zones, that, that we have depleted groundwater levels way beyond the aquifers. The aquifers are probably going to dry up, or in many places they have dried up. 80 percent, it's like sitting on a bomb.
0: That's the kind of a scarcity on water, groundwater-related problems. That's quite extraordinary. Ha- has it deteriorated significantly in, 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 in recent years? In the last uh, two decades or so, basically, The laws that govern
1: water, underground water in particular, are very poorly framed. So if you own the piece of land, then whatever water is there below it is deemed to be yours. So you can keep on mining for water. People go up to 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet just to get that water out. And uh, this has probably increased because of the electricity is uh, subsidized in many states in India. Uh, farmers don't have to pay for electricity or it's at a subsidized rate, or people are even bringing in diesel machines where they find that being more economical. So they keep pumping using electricity
0: or diesel pumps. Right. Because this gets to the heart of, I think, what what's very interesting about what you're doing is, is this question of the commons, it's this question of shared resources, and working with, uh, you know, village communities and so forth. So can maybe we we talk about that a little bit in the sense of understanding, I I guess, firstly, um, what you do in terms of transferring the title, I suppose, or getting the title for some land to to a particular community. And are there precedents when, when you set out to do this? Were there lots of examples of this kind of thing? I know is it Eleanor Ostrom has done her pioneering work on the commons. But can you maybe just talk a little bit about where your ideas for this came from and, and how you approach this question? Well, a group of us, um, we started working in the mid 80s uh, and it
1: was a pretty public kind of a ceremony, you know, the symbolic planting of saplings and very, very important people from Delhi came down and. After they planted the saplings, we all got back to the office and told that one of the officers was sitting there. Uh, he noticed a person sitting in a corner of the room and he was not speaking much. He was not saying he was just a visitor. We didn't know who he came for or whatever. After some time when one of us approached, that person said that he was from the district magistrate office and he was slapping a notice on us for trespassing on government land. That was the first time we came face to face with property rights. We thought that that was village land, and the village people thought that that was village land, and the government said, no, it belonged to the government. So it was uh, protracted discussions with uh, state governments, some six state governments across India, uh, which took a couple of years. Uh, we had National Data Development Board helping us have the dialogue with the state governments, where slowly but the governments were not interested in giving it to the village people. So we had to tell them, we had to show examples of how this was happening on the ground. And a couple of uh, bureaucrats came and visited us, and then they had uh, some genuine questions of how village poor are included, or is it only the big people in the village who are appropriating. So we had to show membership details as a result of which The first state government that happened uh, that allowed this kind of lands uh, to be leased because they want to try it out. They didn't want to pass on the whole ownership in one go. They gave us a lease of 30 years and they said that we would watch. Uh, And then slowly different, different states, Rajasthan, Orissa, uh, different, different states started coming up with rules to lease such lands in the name of the whole collective. Uh, in mid-2000, uh, uh, that is 2006, government of India came up with a, a fantastic act which is called the Forest Rights Act, which states that it is correcting the historical injustice that tribal people, indigenous people, should actually have owned this land, but injustice has been done to them in the last 60 years of free India. So they came up with this act to say that all this land should be given if it is a farmland, it is given to the individual tribal, or if it is a whole forest, then it is given to the village as such. So this was a you know, dramatic uh, developments that happened in 2006 or 7, And it was quickly followed up with another historic development of the Right to Employment Act, which also came in around the same time, wherein any village person can demand for 100 days of work. So public monies were being put in Basically, to address rural distress issues, but uh, this money we started using for restoration of uh, uh, village commons. Once the land is given to the village, the village is form a cooperative or a, it's a panchayat here, and then
0: they start using the public funds and restoring the system. Presumably, you're operating in, in different situations with different existing power relations. So some, some villages might be more equitable than others, but presumably there are still strong elements of patriarchy and also inequity in terms of the larger, wealthier, and more powerful people in, in the community. So can you talk a little bit about that, how you create this more broadly spread governance? So
1: yeah, that's a very deeply uh, you know, inherent problem in many societies across the world, I imagine. In India, we also have an added layer of a caste system, which also plays out very clearly in the way power dynamics unfold in villages. But in the way we pick up the landscapes are typically these kind of landscapes, there would be about 90 percent of the people who belong to more or less the same socioeconomic background, and you might have 10 percent of the people who are. You know, on the other side, extremely powerful, maybe more endowed. The people who are better off also need to be included in this. That's the whole thing of commons. Everyone in the village comes with And they do clearly see much higher returns coming to them too uh, because of the increased, say, water availability. It is their agriculture land. Usually these 10% of people own more land or more fertile lands or more low lands. So they started championing also that this needs to be done. There the challenge then is how do you include women who may not be so vocal or the very poor people. It's not a problem which could be fixed in a decade or less. But that is the push that you need to keep giving. Wherein say wages in the 90s when we started working, men and women were not being given wages in rural India by governments, by ordinary people. But we had, when you're a member of a a village as an equal, then everyone has to get equal wages. So we were probably the first ones in in as early as 90s to ask clearly the village and push them back that both men and women have to be given equal wages. And that was one If we had. We were also challenged by the village people. They did not agree. It was not easy. It took a year maybe in some villages. But once they started seeing the the true sense of equality, that everyone here is equal, they slowly started relenting to it. Now the Right to Employment Guarantee Act at the national level has equal wages for men and women. So small pushes like this will move the needle towards a more equitable society. It would take much longer for it to become a more equitable society, uh, but at least equality is the push that we keep making there is also a demographic change happening in rural India. Uh, Many of the people who are somewhat well-off, who were somewhat well-off, they have moved away from villages to cities and towns. So then the second thing that happened, because of democracy unfolding, the poor people are also more vocal. There is more communication thanks to TV, thanks to uh, technology like mobiles and all. People are not in that trap as it was, say, in the 50s and 60s. And I'm not talking about it in a relative way. I'm not saying that we are a very equitable society, but the context has changed. So the the people's demand for rights uh, at the local level have also manifested, I would say, there is a, a better
0: playing ground for equality to play now than, say, a few decades ago. Yeah, very interesting. And I, I Will, I'd like to talk to you about technology and how that's changing things both within the environment and for you as an organization. How, how many Indians would you say, uh, how many communities do you think potentially in, in India would benefit from this kind of work? You're a growing organization and in India. is so a huge, huge landmass. So I just want to get a sense of, give us a sense of the land, 200 million acres. H- how many people would you say would be involved uh, potentially? Studies done by you know, academic institutions uh, point
1: the figure at 350 million people. These are basically rural people that they're talking about, with about 205, 210 million acres of land, 350 million people. That's about a third or fourth of our country. They could benefit from significantly from this. Just to give you a sense of the kind of economic uh, benefit that you can probably see in four years of work or three to five years of work, is if a land is not managed as commons, they'll be getting something like about $720. But once they start managing it like commons in four years, the incomes could go up to twelve hundred and fifty dollars So that's about a 50% increase in incomes per annum. Um, that's the kind of a change. And this comes, say, from biomass, uh, which is in an unmanaged land, it's about a ton per acre. Whereas when you manage it better then it becomes almost 5 tons per acre in a year. Similarly, if you're looking at fodder in that, it's about 0.2 tons an acre or 0.3 tons an acre if it is unmanaged. But if it is managed, it becomes 0.8 tons per acre. And carbon stock, which is something we should all be working towards, in an unmanaged land is about 0.6 tons per acre. Whereas if you manage it well, carbon stock, including soil carbon, Become something like three tons, three tons per acre, and are not getting into the
0: biodiversity, and you can't put a value on all these things. That's that's fascinating because that's something that has got considerable momentum now globally. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, Discussions about carbon emissions and so forth. Has that changed the? Context in which you're operating, the awareness of the, the the impact, the the changing kind of carbon stocks when the land is being managed well. Oscar Wilde, he said that economists
1: know the price of everything and value of nothing, or something like that, to that effect. Yes. So to put a impute a price or a cost on a nature nature related or even human well being related, it may be okay some some people might need those hard numbers yeah and so we have to when we are and mostly these are all in uh, decision making roles they need to have that confidence of those numbers uh, it is necessary that we present it but to sit and talk about other uh, other more important things so we do considerable work on what we call as natural resource accounting system wherein we try to put the value and show the decision makers that this is the you know, value. They it may not be monetized in but using high-end economic theories, we put impute values around it and we present it to them. The good news is this year this the controller auditor general of India, the assistant comes, she came, she announced that the Indian government is going to present a natural resource accounting framework and a budget of sorts for the whole country. So then you are uh, at least uh, the things which do not have much of voice, like plants and carbon, etc., they would start getting reflected in decision-making. So there are positive sides to it, but we should not... The theory of putting value is somewhat limited uh, yeah, on this kind of natural resources. We are just beginning to understand nature. Uh, we have more questions, or we, in fact, we may not even know the questions to ask about nature. So it's limited but it serves some purposes
0: for governments to move the needle you talked about the potential of natural capital and you know at the same time it's got many different dimensions what are some of the shortcomings do you think what is neglected when people try and put a figure on biodiversity on a forest or things like that in terms of the local community in terms of other other values that you see on the ground
1: one in the locations that we are working in, I would say the poverty-prone areas, it's the notion is not only that of you know this seven hundred dollars becoming twelve hundred dollars or whatever. It seems to be a never-ending growth for growth's sake. <laughs> that's uh, that's only the job of cancer cells to just keep growing like that. And many of these places are subsistence-oriented. They are not interested in this growth. Or the, the local ecosystem does not cater to this You know, doubling incomes or any such thing. People have to live within threshold limits. So as important as it is to probably put a price value on it, you also have to develop what are the ecological thresholds of a given area and thereby decide about your land use, Rather, other than just putting up a dollar value to it and saying that you can keep on increasing it and this will keep on going. That's the larger limitation. Of course, there is, how do you value the smile on a face, the (laughs) contentment of a village woman, or the singing of a parakeet? (laughs) What is the value that uh, actually the serene movements offer to humanity? And we have enough proof during this covid times about how actually walking in a park uh, really improves our health we know that yeah but then what is the value you want to put on it is it only by this dollar value that you are only
0: going to recognize the importance of such things uh, that's that's disappointing and i think sometimes implicit as well as an idea of adding value in uh, making something more valuable so sort of I think traditionally there's been an idea that a piece of land that's not being somehow, you know, capitalized or or developed or being used productively is not a good piece of land. So we do developed another uh, technology product around that tool
1: with along with an organization called Indufor. Basically, we have developed it from the perspective of village people. Basically, to counter such, uh, you know, offers that come from some land-grabbing initiatives it tells you you know by putting imputing costs the same old natural resource accounting thing village people do it and they know the value of their land so that when someone comes to take away the land and they're offering some say five million these people if they know that uh, it is actually seven million they're on the uh, they're talking to them that we don't need this so those numbers if at all village people have also got into the numbers They have a good enough tool to sit and negotiate what is the right one. And in fact, it also helps motivate them. If at all all people have gone into a monetary world, that this is the value.
0: If you had to buy it somewhere, this is the value. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm interested in the time frame and how you think about rehabilitating or regenerating these lands. You were talking about some of the impacts over 10 years. Also, you were talking about already the massive increase in, in biomass just within one year. Can you talk about how you balance shorter term, medium term and longer term considerations in the, regenerating the land and presumably... As well, with with some of the longer term goals and so forth that might have a short term implications in the sense of there might not be so much profitable opportunities if you're saying, well, we need to focus on projects that are going to be five to seven years or over longer t- time frames, if you get my sense. Yeah. Like I explained
1: prior, you know, for the uh, immediate uh, water availability in terms of ponds, that happens even within a year. Um, if you plan it well, and that's where, again, technology and science could be helpful. But uh, we clearly see fodder improvements almost in any year. We need to immediately connect the short-term needs, but with a longer time horizon. Forest takes you know, decades, centuries to grow. But uh, you need to have that long-term vision. But farmers are also interested in short-term benefits. So fodder is something... Which immediately comes in. You wait for three, four years, then you are having much better firewood, which is again a big thing. Uh, You also have a lot of supplementary diet like berries and you know tubers, which start coming in and which supplements the local food habits. And if you wait longer, then you would have even uh, trees, which could be for timber or even for trees giving other forest produce, which will directly go as cash income uh, to the village people. So it's that. A combination of immediate, short-term needs with a, a long-term perspective. Uh, in order to give you another example of, uh, say, water-related and how you spread this short-term and the long-term, I was talking to you about the depletion of groundwater, and uh, we we partnered with um, Arizona State University and with International Food Policy Research Institute and developed. Experimental games, basically using game theory. Uh, Elinor Ostrom was also involved in the initial stages of this uh, before she passed. Um, uh, Basically, village people sit and look at uh, groundwater-related problems and the theory of the tragedy of commons and play games, like a simulation game, wherein for the first round people are not allowed to talk. Uh, and they will be given choices of whether to go for a water-intensive crop like a sugarcane or a, a, a lesser water-demanding crop like some maize or local millets. And they are supposed to take dishes, and they are not supposed to talk. And you play the round for well, you play the game for ten rounds, and you people start visually seeing uh, how their water is. Depleting by their, you know, in every decision they are taking, and people are not talking amongst themselves. The in the second uh, round, which happens, say, on the same day, but in the after after playing the first round, before either they are depleted all the water or not, where people are allowed to talk amongst themselves, and then people start discussing. Okay, you are going for sugarcane this year. Uh, we know that your daughter is getting married, so you are allowed to do that but next year give me the chance and people start framing rules and regulations around it and this combined uh, then automatically people start seeing that the benefit of communicating framing rules regulations amongst one another allows the water to survive till 10 years in in good play it might even be a sustainable level of harvesting so people should come to the short-term needs of either a sugarcane or a millet load water demanding in by discussing amongst themselves so that this is the total water budget and the demand is so much and the supply is so much, so what are we going to do about it? And then you take it towards a 10-year horizon, people start developing rules, mechanisms, uh, which will be at a sustainable level of harvesting or at a, uh, at a level where they don't cross the threshold uh, too much So we unfortunately neglect the the other social elements when you come up with technological solutions. So how do you bridge this to, so that people are more informed with data, with technology based on which they can have a much more informed decision-making. That's the kind of work which we are doing now in maybe about, in four states, I think about 1,000 villages where, these complex, wicked problems like groundwater uh, can be addressed through discussions. And of course you need government programs along it. When people want to frame rules of uh, how to get better incomes, even from the millets and maize, then they would probably need a good quality seed. Probably they'll have to have better agronomical practices or come up with technology like drip irrigation instead of just over flooding the water. So these things in combination will work and move the system towards a better, uh, I would say a more harmonious long-term planning
0: that's fascinating I mean, you you say you're working in, in, in about a thousand villages what's your experience been because I guess from a government perspective these are seen as a rural people uh, uneducated people maybe people that that they, they wouldn't necessarily see as having the the capacities to to self-manage and to make the right kind of decisions I'm also interested in in the timing the patience that it takes to develop to, to educate or to create a context in which people you know can become informed, because so many of the the climate crises where environmental crises we're facing are are urgent and and where everyone's rushing to take action and, and, and to move forward and, and to you know with plans and things but but seeing from what you're saying that it takes time to communicate and to deal with the the education and the social uh, side of things yeah.
1: So, there are many elements in your question. Definitely, there is a deeply embedded one kind of science, you know, <laughs> which is talking about high irrigation, high intensification of agriculture. And including me, I was also you know, a student of one of those agriculture colleges which talk about that kind of uh, agriculture. So, it's very difficult to change their mindsets. So, instead of looking at it like a total turnaround at one go, Uh, The way we partner, and we are partnering now with uh, six state governments and doing it at scale, uh, the way we do is, what are the common meeting points? And then once the government department starts developing trust in what, as an organization, we are trying to do, there is more acceptance uh, towards solutions. We cannot expect a total turnaround in the first year, but say, Uh, if you pick up from the problems that they are facing, the governments are facing, they are talking about improving incomes of village people, agriculture incomes of village people. So how could commons become a part of that is a point of entry. The second thing is uh, this Right to Employment Guarantee Act. Government is often criticized that this is a wasteful expenditure and it's not creating any community durable assets. So how do we improve the functioning of NREG so that you're creating such durable assets like improvement in groundwater or ponds or forests. So we programatize and help the government design that program and then we assist them in implementing it at scale. Now, when you're implementing it at scale, initially we used to depend on this trainers of training kind of an approach that you have some master trainers, they in turn go and say, train some more trainers and they would in turn go to the villages, that's the kind of. But in the last year, and it worked very well during COVID uh, lockdown times also, uh, we adopted something called, which is known for, it's called uh, ECHO, and people tried that uh, for large scale public health training related aspects. It's a kind of a navigated learning model and done digitally. So. What we did was, using that framework, we developed something around water, around this Right to Employment Guarantee Act, around Forest Rights Act, and people are, the best thing about this is village women who are hard put on time to come and attend to such training programs, they can do it on their own, at their home, and at the time that is available to them, and at the pace they want to go through. We have um, mentors available to them. They pick up the phone or there are the groups which are formed. They ask those questions. So they are, in implementing such a thing, each village person or a government functionary gets the guidance as per his or her pace of learning. It's a guided mentoring kind. That has shown considerable promise. Of course, this has other challenges where you don't have mobile you don't have internet, uh, or women do not have those phones. But that problem, we need to fix it. That is about thirty percent of the problem. But you're at least addressing it to the seventy percent of the places where women are having, or where there is internet,
0: or uh, you know, or such. So that's the kind of a scaling approach that you're doing. Because so I wanted to talk to you about how you're organized. You've got a, a massive footprint in terms of the number of villages and, and communities you're working with. How do you organize that? And can you talk about the changing role of technology for you as an organization? Yeah,
1: if you, if you remember, the number is 200 million acres. Yeah, we are currently in something like 9 million acres. For the last four or five years, I think since we spoke last, we have partnered now with about 104 other nonprofits, other NGOs. So it is making our software run on their hardware, where they are the actual champions. They are the heroes in their locality. Working with nature also requires a greater nuancing, which is needed around that particular context. What happens in Rajasthan cannot happen in the other side of India, which is Orissa. So you have local NGOs who are championing this and we provide them services in terms of this uh, trading programs, in terms of technology products, in terms of communication aids. We also sit with governments so that the governments are coming to common forums. That is the scaling model that we're looking at, uh, which if we have to reach, uh, we may not be able to reach 205, but our target is to reach something like 30 million acres in the next five years, that is 2024.
0: That's amazing. And have you developed your own platform? I'm presumably and in interviews I've done, I, I've been fascinated and inspired to see how even something like WhatsApp, WhatsApp groups over mobile phones, working with, you know, uh, very much with rural women and so forth, and more in a maternity context, but very effective. The NGO world has and not had such a great track record with technology deployment to improve their impact and so forth. It's a very challenging area for all kinds of organizations. But have you developed a platform? Are you able to use widely available protocols now? Yep. When you're working on forest, land and water, you know,
1: you require a bird's eye view. These are expenses. Like expanses. So with satellite imageries coming in, you have much better than a bird's eye view. So early 2000s, we were gifted by Canadian SIDA uh, Remote Sensing and GIS Lab, and they trained a few of our people. So eventually, about a year ago, we launched something called an India Observatory. This is a one-stop place where you can get village to national level information about 1,600 parameters on various social, ecological, and economic parameters. When the social, ecological, and economic parameters are interwoven, you have systems thinking happening at the local level. The idea is to basically take it to the end users like village people who are cut off from uh, such data information. People call it the last mile. We call them the first mile. And how do you see, how do you develop tools, products, which are user-friendly for them, and where they are determining the local developmental needs. And we have done very successfully tools around landscape restoration. It's called CLAT, which would tell you where to plan for what kind of a restoration measure. This has been accepted by governments. They are also using this in about four states. So that this huge public investments, the Right to Employment Guarantee Act, it's something like 4 billion US every year how can we improve the behavior of the expenditure so that all these are resulting in somewhat informed decision-making and where village people are in the center of decision-making. That's the moment. So we have several tools. The idea is not, not that we develop it, we develop the tool or we develop the data source or whatever. How do you pool? How do you collaborate with various organizations, various data Everyone is coming out with a tool or an algorithm or an analytics and throwing it out. We are interested in pulling them together, contextualizing it for the village people and seeing that
0: the data is creating the delta on the ground. That's the business we are into. That's very interesting. And I would like to ask slightly contentious topic, I suppose, but this question of digital identity for rural people and so forth. Now, I'm, I'm not very familiar with this, but it's had a tremendous momentum in India. It seems a big uh, investment and not without critics in terms of the level of centralization and so forth. And We know that data can get misused. We know that data can can get commodified. Can you situate or or give us a sense of the the context for these major, major initiatives across India for digital ID? Is it working? Is it a good idea? Are there safeguards, rails in place to to stop abuse? Mm. There are big, big
1: issues (laughs) around that and data privacy and what is the data useful and how much are you in control around it. There is a a lot of criticism which you must have read and which we also subscribe. You know, having said that, do we allow this, you know, clean sweep to happen and then we come about, uh, uh, you know, opposing it or confronting it? Or can we, you know, data and knowledge is also commons. Should we occupy that space as equals? Like a Wikipedia is a commons around knowledge, or a Linux is around the digital world. The, yeah, like a Windows, you have Linux. So, can we create a Creative Commons around data? You know, that's the place. And fully respecting the privacy issues, data privacy issues. It's a long, long big job, but we are there trying to see that village people are not going to lose out on this. There are important questions of sharing. We don't collect personal information, where during COVID times the information was being freely given, but we had to anonymize it and we could not share it, and we would not like to share it. We in fact ask people not to share it. So there are there's a bigger uh, whole set of issues. You are familiar with what's happening in your side of the world. It's the same thing. Technology and data are also very clear global assets and what's happening in one part of the country or one part of the world actually you know there's no boundaries for those things so we have to be very very
0: cautious about the the political economy and the moral values around that and are you active in that at the moment as an organization or individually yes as an organization we are We're, we are struggling with it but we want it to
1: be there are concepts like data stewardship coming in or data for good you know those kind of a kind of a a common ownership and um, a degree of security of uh, or you being in the center of decision making we are very much a part of those groups and we want to position the whole idea of this india observatory is not to compromise on that moral compass and do you see blockchain as being a potential in in this area For, I think, not my particular area of expertise or knowledge, I do see value for that in terms of uh, land records. And that's a messy, messy world of uh, how land (laughs) records are being maintained in India. I am told that it offers promise there, but I'm not uh, confident. I'm not
0: sure on that. Yeah, no, no. And I, I guess just coming back to this transferring of the ownership or the title of the land to a community, but more generally, it, it seems to be the case that, that land ownership titles, I guess some economists feel that this is an essential requirement for economic development and for rural people to, to have this. Can you talk a little bit about that? These are big issues, I know, and, and presumably there are other organizations that are working on that side of things as well. Yeah, it's a matter which is of uh, you know deep interest to us, but there's no
1: easy solution to it. See, certain societies, rural societies that can be work, and more so indigenous tribal people, their notions about uh, owning land is very different. They don't believe in owning. They they look at it as a custodial relationship. But then we have the modern or the outside law which has come in. Not that it has come. Probably India had it for a few centuries. But those laws are very clearly fixing or ascertaining a kind of a property or ownership issue which has got very deeply into the way developmental world has progressed what we are trying at best is because in the lack of recording of their customary rules which are very formal to village people not this they might see usually dismiss them off as informal but no they are very very formal to the village people how do you synchronize it with the outside law that happens. Forest Rights Act uh, somehow captured that well. They fully put the whole onus of uh, decision making totally in the village, in the hands of the village or in the hands of the people. So there is a good opportunity to fix the notions of the custodial relationship with the developments of modern property laws. There is a lot of criticism of property being the essence of development of growth of you know all the isms in the world the other side also like the other isms also have i think ownership in certain societies was very clear you would not allow someone else to sleep in your bed yeah (laughs) so there was something else that was happening in the other side of the world too that is going to be a big big debate our main interest is When the corporations or governments or outside people coming in and try to claim the land of the village people, are these people on a negotiating table or not? They might have their own custodial relationship, their own customary ways, but if they have the paper, then they they are in a better position to negotiate the land with the outside world. That is the reality today. If it was a different world, maybe we wouldn't have got into this whole recording the property rights. Yeah?
0: Yeah. Pragmatic way of dealing with it. Because I wanted to ask you about this. You talk about systems approach, systems theory, and this initiative to the platform for all the data. And as you already pointed out, sometimes this can be a double-edged sword in one sense, you you know, valuing nature as something I'd love to talk about to, to you about more. But I'm just wondering how that sits with the indigenous peoples. And, you know, we, we live in a world of great scientific breakthroughs and a very scientific oriented society. What lessons are there from, in your experience, from the indigenous peoples that you've worked with in terms of how they think about the the land, the biodiversity? They're also rapidly changing,
1: mainly the younger people coming into towns for search of jobs and other opportunities. But what seems to be underlying that kind of a society is frugality, very, very minimal use of resources and consumption levels. That's something which the outside world has to learn. I thought we were getting there during the COVID initial months uh, when we started seeing Himalayas uh, from very distant places uh, in Punjab. Uh, so I think the, the second important thing which we should learn from them is about the, their identity is defined along with nature. It is not as if they are two separate things. The way they connect to rivers, to banana leaves or to a forest or to bees, it is very deeply a kind of a a coexistence that somehow got that thread of coexistence got attenuated in the way modern society or or the outside world grew. I think there is a a lot to learn from tribal people on that coexistence of nature and people,
0: particularly in human-dominated landscapes. Yeah, very, very interesting. One area I would be interested also in getting your perspective is so much of your work is connected to government work as well, these major government, these laws, but also at state levels, working with states to develop policies and commons. I think you were talking about those kinds of things when we last spoke. So this is, I guess, part of a broader systems approach as well, working with, with the government to create these initiatives at scale. What, what are a few lessons you, you've learned, would you say, in terms of working with government in India? Um,
1: good that you raised this issue. This is, you know, in the current parlance, it's called a systems change language. And that's what we are looking at. If, if at all, we have to address 200 million, 200 million acres of land. And there are many actors like governments, uh, public representatives, technology people, media people, judicial people, NGOs. How do you join the dots between these seemingly you know, disconnected actors? That's uh, And what kind of uh, uh, the current configuration of the system is not, at least in some areas, it's not working for the poor people. Though we might have the law, though we might be spending money, it is not leading to desired outcomes. Yeah. So how do you work with these actors, these uh, policymakers or judiciary or uh, other NGOs or the technology groups to shift the system so that it is probably more inclusive of women, more connecting ecosystems with the economic development? That's the kind of work that we're getting into. That's the whole progression that we are making. Instead of we doing it and we scaling it we, how do we partner with, say, 100 other organizations or 500 other organizations so that everyone is championing for this kind of a change in the system and creating that pull in that ecosystem where the public representatives and the decision makers start connecting the dots and convening uh, various groups to come together so as to address uh, the weak capacities in the system, so as to bring about desirable changes in the programs, and lastly, to improve the accountability and transparency that these public servants have towards the larger society. That is the larger movement we are moving towards. So it's focusing not so much on the organization, FES as such, but the whole ecosystem. We are calling it, an. we are more interested in an ecosystem organization where all players, be it technology, be it media or NGOs, are coming
0: together for this larger purpose of nature and people. It sounds hugely important to create change at the level that's needed. Clearly, patience and taking time is something you've talked about at the beginning, which I guess is underlying this, is to, you know, communications and so forth. Are are there one or two other pieces of of insight, I suppose, in terms of ways of thinking about engaging with states and and with judiciaries and with these different government type bodies?
1: The onus of responsibility actually lies on us. I always keep telling my colleagues that we failed, that the commons has not been taken up as an important problem for the governments to handle. But the problem lies in the way governments are, these big players are organized. They're very sectoral. So unless we present our solution as, as a value interaction with their priority, it is never going to be accepted in the larger system. So our challenge is how do you, be it that uh, natural capital or economics kind of a discussion, or be it in actual translation of a larger intent into programmatic action, who is the doer, who is the payer, you know, that kind of a change. or being of assistance in the gaps that they are having, like the training programs being highly ineffective. How can you improve their the, the delivery of the program so that the outcomes are much better? Or how can technology bring in more rigor, more efficiency and better change on the ground? These are the ways to help the system to shift. And you always keep on pushing towards the larger values of, say, inclusion of the marginalized groups like our tribal population are
0: tilting the system towards more women-friendly decisions. So much fascinating work you're doing, Jagdish, in so many areas. I'm sure we could talk for a long time. So, Jagdish, just to finish, after almost 20 years as CEO, you've decided to take on another broader role. Now, you talk about this as a curator of the Promise of Commons initiative. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and what your aspirations are for the future there Jagdish?
1: Couple of points struggle. One the extent of commons in India is something like 200 million acres like I shared uh, previously. An organization like FES can do that much. We've reached somewhere around 15 million or 13 million acres if and the calamitous nature of this problem, uh, all over you are having water scarcity, uh, loss of biodiversity. If we have to hit at 205 million acres, then it requires uh, a range of actors, uh, many, many nonprofits, government bodies, think tanks to come together. It requires a kind of a, a ecosystem level effort of various actors, initiatives, joining hands to to move the needle uh, towards impact at that scale. So I have been asked to grow into that role of serving the larger ecosystem of organizations and working on three fundamental things. One is to build a larger constituency of such doers, thinkers, and enablers. Uh, the second one is to to promote exchange of knowledge uh, between village people and the outside people, exchange of knowledge systems itself, and between villages and other villages. Uh, that is the second piece of work. The third piece of work is to influence, say, public representatives, decision makers. Uh, Think tanks to see what kind of an enabling arrangements are necessary so that the system actually serves better. Uh, We know that systems by their very nature are not necessarily value neutral and they tend to perpetuate some kind of inefficiencies, inadequacies in the current equilibrium. So unless we move the system to work better for nature and for say women, they would continue to perpetuate the current equilibrium. So our role with all this larger constituency of actors and the initiatives is to see that the system is more sensitive towards the larger needs of the planet and also serving for people who are really marginalized. That's going to be my role.
0: Very interesting, a vital role. Where are you in the development of the project?
1: We are fully on. I've been asked to work on this in the last couple of years, but being within the organization, you get pulled into the organizational demands. So since August, I'm focusing more on the outward role, and that's the nature of work that I'm from the last six months. And this Promise of Commons initiative is from two thousand mid 2018 now we are adding people energies funds to make this happen
0: i wish you the very best of success with the, your next adventure and thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all your insights and great work you've done jagdish thank you for thank you for listening to the inspiring social entrepreneur podcast i hope you found this interview inspiring Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.